Hello and welcome to episode 52 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining us today, live from London, is David Martin-Jones, visiting professor of war studies at King's College. We'll be asking David if postmodern politics have launched us on a ship of fools. David Martin-Jones, how are you? I'm very well, uh, and it's good to talk to you, Salvatore. Well, good morning, very well, and very awake, I see. Um, look, who are history, who, just who are the history's fools of your latest book's title? Uh, history's fools is about uh, the ideology that history ended. So it's basically those who bought into a teleology at the end of the 1980s that um, we were on en route to a liberal democratic or progressive end of history. And, and the argument in the book is that this illusion led to um, a, a chain of consequences uh, with which we are still dealing with the fallout from. Now the book of course is History's Fools, The Pursuit of Idealism and the Revenge of Politics. That's out now from Hearst. Um, revenge of politics? What's going on? Well, the, the, uh, the ideology behind the progressive end of history assumed that um, globalization, economic development, the fall of the Soviet Union would lead to uh, all states following um, uh, uh, what Thomas Friedman at the end of the uh, 20th century called a golden straitjacket, which would constrain all economies to follow a certain progressive route. The fallout politically is that it didn't happen, that the long war on terror, the financial crisis uh, indicated the hubris behind this view. And it's that hubris we're now dealing with, with the rise of what one of the chapters calls the um, revisionist states, namely, uh, the People's Republic of China and, and Russia. I'm going to Americanize that, you can make fun of me, uh, but I did pick up on the liberal hubris of the progressive professional class being really at the heart of your argument. Is that, I mean, who's the, who are the hubristic ones here? Name some names for us. Well, basically the Democrat Party. United States? What are, is yeah. this a transnational movement or is this just a U.S. Democrats problem? Well, I know it's a transnational movement. But no, I, I mean, it, it, its origins are obviously with um, Francis Fukuyama's uh, initial, you know, essay in the national interest, um, uh, The End of History, which in that essay was pref ended with a question. The book that came out in 1992 had a full stop at the end of it. Um, but Fukuyama himself um, indicated some reservations about how history would end, although the general direction, the teleology was towards this limit, liberal democratic um, uh, providential um, arrangement that would arise over time. Um, 
but later writers, notably Thomas Friedman and others, and then really, uh, you know, whether it was Blair in the UK, Clinton in, in America, and then Bush, uh, and in the UK, you know, after Blair, it was Cameron, in Germany, it was Schroeder, all these politicians uh, took um, this line that history was progressing uh, in a way that was shaped by a Western liberal um, understanding. And, and although there might be blips along the road, this was the direction of history and it was kind of unstoppable. And, and, and a number of you know, writers, uh, commentators at the time, all bought into this, uh, what I see as, as a delusion. I mean, you can't blame the US Democrats for George Bush and David Cameron. So is this really one side of politics or is this really a, a, an issue of an entire class of people who share a, a viewpoint about the world? Yeah, I, I think this is, um, that, 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 that's the way the, I mean, the, the, the argument is that if there wasn't certain economic preconditions, namely the collapse of the Soviet Union, the globalization of markets, etc., then the ideology itself wouldn't have had a purchase. But its purchase was across, um, uh, it, was, it was across the media, it was across academe, and it was across the political class of the West. So whether you, uh, it starts with a sort of a social democrat edge with a, a, a you know, a democratic uh, reformative purpose, progressive, but it's sucked up by um, liberal conservatives. The, the center right also buys into the, the, the thinking. So it, it, it's a, a normative, um, understanding that grips, I suppose, what you could call the political elites in the West with ultimately devastating consequences. Right. Now, I, I, I'm actually going to hopefully, if we have time, take you up later on the, the Fukuyama issue, because personally, I, I'm more Fukuyama than Fukuyama himself. But let me establish your own position here first. Yeah. Uh, so if these are foolish people uh, pursuing foolish policies, you know, what's the reality that they're missing? What, what are they being so foolish about? Well, the foolishness is that um, history has a uh, direction and a purpose. It doesn't. As, uh, you know, a skeptical philosopher that I used to, you know, be involved with back in the uh, the last century, those who speak the language of the of history's development uh, are speaking the language of a ventriloquist dummy. Um, so the assumption that that history is moving in a in a direction that that gripped uh, a, a, an elite uh, worldview uh, is always going to have um, um, illusory consequences. And, and, and the missing, you know, kind of understanding was that countries that the West um, encouraged to uh, or, or facilitated in globalizing, like China, never bought into that um, understanding. Uh, similarly, 
you know, the, the, the manner in which um, the, the West invested, or particularly the United States and its coalition partners invested in long wars, um, uh, uh, sort of led to um, a massive distraction about what was going on, particularly in the Asia Pacific, which of course you, you know very well yourself, Salvatore. But Francis Fukuyama in that famous essay said that there were people who were, had been left behind, who were still mired in history. Uh, the challengers to the new liberal orthodoxy, I mean, the Putins of the world, the, you know, the, the Lukashenkos of the world, the Xi Jinpings, the Islamic states, the Iranian revolutionary guards, aren't they just the leftovers of history? Well, I think that's the, the, the kind of problem, isn't it? I mean, if that's the case, there, there's, you know, when Fukuyama wrote that, as, as I said, you know, I acknowledge the fact that Fukuyama did observe that there were, as he said, blips along the road, potentially road bumps to the end of history. But that in itself is, it is uh, an assumption of, overweening arrogance, I would have thought, because um, uh, yes, there are these, uh, you know, leftovers, but maybe they're not leftovers at all. Maybe they present a, a, a particular or a scenario for the future, which we haven't particularly, you know, which the end of history perspective rather sort of dismisses. And that dismissal um, showed, as I would argue in the book, a lack of prudence. Now, you suggest in, in Chippefu, uh, I'm sorry, in um, uh, Chippefu, I'm sorry, Ship of Fools is Plato. <laughs> the, the, uh, by the way, was Plato an inspiration for your title? Have been, you know, also a good title, actually. Yeah, but was Plato an inspiration for your title? No, the inspiration was Hannah Arendt. Um, Tell, tell us about that. What is, what is the Arendt connection to the book? Well, Arendt was, um, the, the work of Arendt that I particularly um, drew upon is, is her work on revolution. Um, and and it, uh, it, it, it takes there, um, you know, Arendt was a very interesting and I think um, uh, not very uh, properly appreciated political thinker uh, and particularly she she notes the fact that actually the inspiring revolution for a political order was the American Revolution and for a variety of reasons the American Revolution uh, was superseded by a much you know as a model by a much worse revolution namely the French one and then the the, the subsequent Russian Revolution and for some, you know, for a variety of reasons, the understanding that informed the founding fathers, um, Madison, Hamilton, Adams particularly, uh, was one that was deeply influenced by um, uh, Greco-Roman thought by Plato, but particularly Aristotle and Cicero. And what the founding fathers learned, and which was so important for the American um, constitution was was an ancient understanding adapted to a modern polity which proved so successful 
Yet for some reason, or for a variety of reasons, America looked in awe at European thinkers, particularly of the 19th and early 20th century, and thought they were somehow more um, uh, thoughtful, more philosophical, but actually um, they were all, um, uh, <laughs> from Aaron's point of view, a waste of space, um, which had led to the catastrophe of Europe in the 20th century. Right. Well, I mean, the Russian revolutionaries explicitly referenced Robespierre. Lenin explicitly referenced Robespierre as a model. Uh, yeah, but, exactly. But Ham Hamilton and Adams, though, I, I, I do want to push you a bit here because they were, of course, federalists in the U.S. context, and they were very much fans of the era of good feelings, the idea that, you know, the the elite of the country knew what was best for the country and could look out for it, and they were bitten by the return of politics in the form of Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. Isn't there kind of a straight line between the, you know, the Hamiltons, the Adamses of the world and the Tony Blairs of the world, again, in the Bill Clintons getting bitten by politics when politics comes back? Well, um, I think the different, <clears throat> well, you know, from my perspective or the argument of the book, the, the importance of um, uh, or the significance of, 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 of all those uh, American, uh, you know, revolutionary thinkers is that their revolution was premised on a, a classical uh, understanding. But, you know, in, in particular, as, as, um, uh, as Aaron points out in On Revolution, they were deeply involved with political thought, i.e. classical political thought, particularly they'd read their Aristotle, their Cicero, they'd studied Gibbon, they, you know, they, they looked to a classical past. And in that, um, uh, you know, they walked backwards into modernity. They, they were informed or they took on and adapted classical prudence to a modern political under or an evolving modernism of the Enlightenment. This is not true of Blair or Clinton, who one suspects has, um, you know, never read uh, either Machiavelli or Aristotle, and if they have, they never understood it. Well, I mean, let me put to you a, a very much a Hamiltonian, at least Hamilton mm. the musical, uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, who was herself bitten by politics in the form of Donald Trump. Uh, are there echoes here in the in the Clinton-Trump, you know, butting of heads uh, of what you're talking about, about the history's fools being overtaken by the return of the political? Yeah, well, I think that's that, 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 that's um, very accurate. Um, but I, I want to make clear what I understand, you know, the political is that, and, you know, the political... Uh, the word politics is one that is, you know, little understood, it seems, at the moment, but used to be a central understanding in, um, you know, first year into introductory to politics courses, say, in the UK or Australia, which was by, um, you know, a social democrat, um, uh, Bernard Crick, in defense of politics. And politics assumes that there is... Um, 
a, a, a public space in which um, disagreement can occur and different policies be out, outlined with a, a space for compromise. The problem with the end of history politics of Blair and, um, and Bush and Cameron was that there was no space for an alternative worldview to the end of politics. What we've seen in terms of the return of, um, uh, you know, nationalism, if you like, or some degree of nativism in, in Europe and America is the return of politics, because there is still uh, at the moment that space, but how long it remains is, 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 is open to question. Well, is it, is it fair to say that, or to put, your, put words in your mouth, to say no politics without the polis? Absolutely, yeah. You, you, you couldn't have phrased it better, Salvatore. Why, why, thank you. You're welcome to use that in your next book. Uh, again, I'm getting the idea from you. And, and the question I have for you is, do we need to have a, a polis, a nation, a community of some kind before we can have politics, before we can have arguments over actual policies? Absolutely. I think, you know, again, you know, to take the, uh, the influence of Arendt in, in, in my writing, that's precisely what she argued, that you, you cannot have the um, public debate unless you have a, uh, a, a realm that's defined. In other words, uh, to practice politics, you need the polis, you need the state, you need borders, you, you can't have free movement, you can't have um, uh, a completely uh, cosmopolitan or global um, citizen. Citizens are members of states and that was something that Hamilton and Madison understood completely. Uh, uh, let me ask you about a, a personal bet more and, and because you did bring up citizenship, I'm always a, a, a bit mystified by the attachment of members of our class, intellectuals, public servants, professionals, to the idea of multiple citizenships. How does multiple citizenship square with the idea of the, well, of, of the nation state as a community of citizens? Uh, well, it doesn't really, does it? I mean, the um, I think there is um, obviously having dual national uh, citizenship myself. You know, being both a UK citizen and an Australian one, um, uh, th th there is, and I'm, you know, I, I can live with that because I'm I'm a member of two polices: British when I'm here, Australian when I'm there. Um, that the, the, but basically, um, if, if politics is to uh, function, then citizenship has to be truly valued. And at the moment, um, you know, the, the wokeness of the world is about diluting citizenship and endlessly, um, uh, you know, advancing the cause of victims everywhere. So in a sense, citizenship has 
declined uh, uh, as a virtue and been replaced by the status of the victim or the minority, which gives you, uh, it seems, particular uh, value in the West in the way that citizenship doesn't. And, and, and that's, um, you know, that's been part of the end of history uh, dilemma, really. Well, I mean, I've heard the argument in Australia that you can, you know, if you are Australian and British, you're under the same crown, and you know, monarchists may take that yeah. position. But, I mean, you can't be a dual citizen of New South Wales and Victoria. You have to choose one. You can't have both. You can't vote in both jurisdictions just because you have strong attachments to both states. Why should well, people have... Yeah, but it's, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, you, you, you can be uh, New South Wales when you're watching... Uh, Origin, like be a Queenslander, you know. but but when it when push comes to shove, you're Australian, mate. <laughs> All right, look, let me get to the more serious issue you're raising, which is the status of the citizen as an individual versus the status of groups within society. So claims of groups. What kinds of claims do groups has have as groups within society? Well, I, I think, um, well, that, that, that's a big question, isn't it? I, I mean, the, the central point about um, uh, uh, classical liberalism was it was about the individual and, you know, the social contract. And it was, was premised upon um, the, the modernity allowing the space for the individual to... Um, develop him or herself in a productive way within the container that is the nation state. The, 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 the shift from individual rights to group rights that, that took off, um, particularly um, in the, in the, from the 1970s onwards through um, uh, post-Rawlsian political thought has, um, you know, sort of, uh, promoted groups at the expense of individuals. And if you can find yourself a group that's somehow marginalized or deserving of compensation, that becomes more significant to your um, uh, capacity uh, 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 as a, uh, a right-holding, right-bearing um, uh, group rather than as a right-holding individual, which is um, uh, a kind of perversion, uh, you know, the, the group rights thinking perverts um, the idea of individual rights and individualism and takes it in a, um, a depressingly collectivist uh, direction, which is, uh, is the source of many of our contemporary woes. I mean, this group rights issue seems to be connected with another research interest of yours, which is the, the distinction between sin and, and crime. And if I can make this practical, uh, you know, if, if someone assaults another person, uh, that's a crime. That's but right. if someone assaults that other person out of hatred for the group that person's a member of, out of homophobia, out of Islamophobia, out of racism, well, it used to be that that was a sin. You know, the racism, the homophobia was a bad thing, but not a crime. Hate, hate speech laws and hate crime laws 
seem to criminalize this kind of the, the state of mind. How does that connect with what we're talking about here about the group rights versus individual rights? Yeah, well, I, I think the um, you know as, as as I've been working on recently in in a in a series of essays, um, this what we've um, you know well a fascinating you know context of of hatred is that um, hate has always been related to sin rather than crime and, and one of the great sort of developments in the west was to separate um, a, a religious fundamentalism from the practice of the state so um, uh, instead of imposing one theological or moral order upon everyone uh, the distinction between crime and sin becomes more and more apparent under a classical liberal uh, framework from the 17th and 18th century onwards. And it gets classically um, put together uh, and brilliantly really by the um, Wolfenden Committee in, in the 1950s in the UK on homosexuality, because you know, up until the 1950s, homosexual behavior was seen as sanctionable as a crime. Um, and the, the point that Wolfenden makes is, why is that the case? It's, it it's just happens to be a preference which some people disapprove of and others find completely uh, acceptable. To impose um, uh, something that is <clears throat> a moral predilection of some upon the whole community is to impose uh, a religious order upon a secular uh, arrangement and politics whatever else it is has to be secular all right david martin jones thank you very much for joining us we'll have to leave it on that note we do appreciate your making the time especially in such a difficult time uh, in london thank you Thanks everyone for watching. Uh, thanks to Nico Malin, our, Malian, our producer, Max Hawk Weaver, our executive producer. The director of Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Next week on On Liberty, Glenn Fay will be in the chair. He'll be interviewing Bella Debrera on Cancel Culture. Please tune in then. You can see us next week on On Liberty. <laughs>